some of these verses. Now, this is God's word, and we want to remind ourselves to take it seriously, and standing is one way we can do that. Uh, and when we're done here, then Lars will come up and he will preach. So let's start in chapter 6, and we'll read 53 to 55. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And then skip down, if you would, to verse 66. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to your Word this morning, we pray that we would take it seriously as it is. And this is a hard word for us this morning. So I pray you'd soften our hearts that we might be receptive to what you say to us individually, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we'd have our eyes open to the incomparable Jesus this morning, and that we might apply these things personally. Amen. Please be seated. Across the street from where I work, there is a restaurant called True Food. Now, it's decent food. I've been there. But I think a more appropriate name would be Truly Overpriced Food. They pride themselves in being organic. And for the past decade or so, I'm sure you've noticed a resurgence in interest in healthy food, organic food, natural food, health food. This morning... I stirred some green powder in my orange juice, and the the label said, Amazing Superfood. I hope it at least offsets the donut that I ate later. (laughs) But no matter how, how beneficial these foods may be, they're limited to this life under the sun. Some foods are certainly healthier than others, but none of these foods are ultimately satisfying. None of these provide nourishment that matters in eternity. In our passage this morning, Jesus makes an astounding, indeed outrageous claim that he himself is true food. Food with the kind of benefits that make the claims of all these other foods insignificant and inconsequential. He says you must consume him to have eternal life, and this was a hard message to receive. This morning we're going to consider this hard message from Jesus and how people responded to it then and how people respond to it today. And ultimately, of course, what matters personally, how do we respond? So first in your outline, the hard message, you need to consume Jesus. I'm going to read starting in verse 51. Please read with me in your own Bibles through verse 59. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What does Jesus mean? This is very graphic Language and if taken literally would mean cannibalism. Well, we know that's not what he meant. No one ever ate Jesus' flesh literally, but it must mean something. So what does he mean? At first reading, it can seem like maybe an allusion to the Lord's Supper. I mean, taking the bread and cup as symbols of his body and blood given for us. However, he cannot be referring to the Lord's Supper for a number of reasons, and let me just name a few. First, and most importantly, it would mean that eternal life comes through taking the Lord's Supper, and not through faith in Jesus, which would contradict not only this chapter, but the rest of John and all the scriptures. Second, the Lord's Supper would not be implemented for another year after this, and no one there would recognize this practice. Third, interestingly, in every case in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper is discussed, The word my body is used, not my flesh. It's a different Greek word. Finally, the verb here is a once-for-all action, not a repeated action like the continued consuming of the Lord's Supper. Well, if he's not talking about the Lord's Supper, then what does he mean by consuming his flesh and blood? Well, here's where our cultural context puts us at a disadvantage. When I'm having chicken dinner, for instance, with my family, and I ask my kids, where did we get this food? They'd probably say Costco or some grocery store. In nearly every culture in history, that would not be the answer from children at the dinner table. They would say it comes from the chicken that we just killed. Their food was directly connected with a death. I grew up on a hobby farm where we raise chickens, and I'll spare you the graphic details, but suffice it to say that the saying, running around like a chicken with his head cut off, is an appropriate saying. It's a very vivid image that you can't unsee. (laughs) And it changes your relationship with the meal you eat later. Most of us rarely today ever connect our food with a death. But in the first century, everyone did. And they understood that their own life was extended with each meal. And in the case of eating meat or flesh, their life had been extended by a necessary death. So when Jesus says, I give my flesh and blood for the life of the world, he's pointing to his future death, his death as we know on the cross. He's saying, as a result of my death, others will be nourished, not just for the next meal, but forever. Their life will not just be extended, but they will receive a qualitatively different kind of life, an eternal life. 
Then to draw the distinction further, he references Moses, as all these Jews would be familiar with, and the manna in the wilderness. After the exodus, God provided this bread-like substance. It was miraculous to extend their lives, but it only satisfied until they got hungry again. So Moses' manna was still this earthly kind of food. Jesus is saying he's not only a new Moses, He's a greater savior than Moses ever was. The manna sustained them until the next meal. But what Jesus offers in his death sustains the consumer eternally. When he says, I'm true food, he's not saying, I'm truly the stuff that you eat. He's saying, the stuff that you eat is only a shadow of true food. The true food is what I offer you. The food you're used to satisfies for a while. That food is a feeble pointer to true food. I'm that true food that satisfies forever, that gives eternal life. So his flesh and blood he offers is his death on the cross. He says, this bread I will give because the cross is still future. Remember, John showed us earlier in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God, this sacrificial Lamb who takes away the sin of the world by the Lamb's death. Later we see in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Jesus is the one who will be lifted up on the cross, like Moses lifted up the serpent so that anyone who looks to him will be saved. Jesus says, I will give my flesh for the life of the world. He died for others. Again, this idea of substitution. The Lamb of God lifted up to die. His death would bring life for others. And to get that life, we need to consume him. It's a graphic way of saying that people need to take Christ into their innermost being. Leon Morris says it this way. This is a cryptic allusion to the atoning death Jesus would die. Together with the challenge to enter the closest and most intimate relation with him. Remember this chapter takes place at Passover. When the Jews consumed the Passover lamb. That's how they personally appropriated or identified with God's salvation. That's what Jesus means. Second question. Letter B, why is consuming Jesus necessary? Why do we need to consume Jesus and his death on the cross? Well, Jesus is very clear, isn't he? To have eternal life. And without consuming him, you do not have that life. So, this couldn't be more important, could it? An eternal life in John is not merely life that doesn't end, but a different quality of life. An abundant life that starts now. Spiritual life that you receive when you're born again, when you consume Jesus and his death. And even physical death cannot end this new life. We know from 2 Corinthians, when Christians die, our spirits go immediately into the glory of heaven. This abundant life now can be enjoyed through this extreme intimacy with Jesus. He says in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the doctrine of the union with Christ. It's a great doctrine. We're going to spend much more 
time detailing that in chapter 15 with the vine and the branches. Our nourishment comes from abiding and union with him. Paul captures this idea in Galatians 2. No, listen to the intimacy and the participation, the close participation with Jesus. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So intimate. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Flesh and blood for me that I might live. This is super intimate, isn't it? The believer's very life comes from Christ who lives in him. And this is all rooted in the cross. Paul says, the love of Christ who gave himself for us in his death, the flesh and blood, so that we might live. A.W. Pink summarizes why consuming Jesus is so important. He says this, Jesus is saying, I am that which every sinner needs, and without which he will surely perish. Martin Luther said, this is the message of the Christian church to itself and to the world, declaring in our hearts that he will satisfy us and testifying to the world about the satisfaction we have found in Christ alone. So, just like eating earthly food is necessary for physical life, so consuming Jesus and his sacrificial death is necessary for spiritual life, eternal life. Well, how is that done? How do you consume his flesh and blood, his death? Well, notice back in verse 40, Bentley covered this. We read this in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, here in verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying the same thing. So, looking to the Son and believing in him personally is the same thing as feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. Eating and drinking him describes our receiving, our internalizing Christ, consuming him and the benefits of his sacrificial death. J.C. Ryle explains it this way. Whenever a man feeling his own guilt and sinfulness lays hold of Christ and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death, he at once eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood. So consuming, believing, trusting, receiving, internalizing, personally appropriating, these are all personal actions, aren't they? You can't benefit from food unless you eat it. Likewise, you cannot benefit from Jesus' death on the cross unless you personally appropriate what he's done for you and your sins. No one can eat for you. You must take it yourself and chew it down, swallow it, digest it on your own. I've often told my kids especially as they've gotten older. You know, if you're just reading and studying your Bible when we do it together as a family or, or with the other kids in youth group or in Sunday school, if the only time you're praying is when we do it together, there's no reason to think you're a Christian. I mean, consuming Jesus must be individual and personal. No one can eat for you. Now, Families and church families and friends help us, don't they, immensely in our Christian lives. But the point is this. 
If your Christianity is only relevant when you're with other Christians, you're not a Christian. The benefits of Jesus' death must be appropriated individually by faith. And if you're truly born again, if you've consumed him, you cannot get enough of Jesus. Listen to James Boyce. He says this, Is Jesus as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say that because although he's obviously much more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. It's sadly true, isn't it? Throughout his gospel... John uses the word over and over. He uses the word believe. We must believe in Jesus to have eternal life. Well, John wants, us, wants to make very clear what he means by believe. Okay, it's, it's way more than just believing something's true. Like we might use the word believe today. He's giving a graphic illustration here of what believing in Jesus implies. Feasting on Jesus and his death. And it's interesting, Jesus escalates the language as he goes, doesn't he? First, he's the bread of life. Okay, maybe people are saying, okay, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. I see where you're going. It's, that makes sense to me. Then you must eat my flesh and blood. Whoa. I mean, this is a little much here. Then in verse 54, you can't see it in English as well, but he switches from the normal word for eat to a more aggressive word that means gnawing on or chewing. It, he ramps up the graphic nature of munching on something, an active, audible eating. The ESV translated feeds on. These people are like, tone down the language. You're losing us, Jesus. And he keeps ramping it up. This language conveys the idea of being all in with Jesus. All in. They want Jesus to tone it down. But he says, make no mistake, you need to be all about me and my death. Sold out completely like you can't get enough of me. So when we read in John's gospel, this word believe... Just remember as we go through, this is what he has in mind. It's not believing intellectually. Like, yeah, that seems to be true. I believe in Jesus. Not at all what he means. It's taking Jesus into one's internal being, like ravenously gorging on food. This is meant to be shocking. How personal, how radical, how life-changing a relationship with Jesus is. The death of Christ and all that Jesus is must be acted upon, embraced and internalized completely without reservation. This is a strong message, isn't it? A hard message. So how do people respond? Number two in your outline. Letter A, for many, this is too hard to swallow. Let's read in verse 60 through 66. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning 
who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now the word disciples here, it's used several different ways in John, and the context always determines which way it's being used. Sometimes disciples refers just to the twelve. Sometimes disciples refers to all genuine followers of Jesus. But sometimes it just means learners. Those in the crowds who are listening and learning as he's teaching. This last sense is how it's used here. Disciples here includes those on the fringe in the crowd that aren't truly believers. And these disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The words mean it's hard to accept. It's hard to listen in the sense of obeying what's being said. They don't ask him for clarification about what he's talking about. They were not frustrated trying to understand intellectually the concept. That wasn't hard in that sense. No, it says they were grumbling, complaining. They didn't like what he said. It was offensive to them for a number of reasons. He's making it all about him. And Jesus says the flesh is no help at all. This is so offensive. It means relying on your own ability, your own flesh, your own identity, who you are, what you've done. There's no help in those things. I mean, think about it. Doesn't matter who you are, what family you were born into, what religious credentials you might have. It's of no help. You need me. It's the spirit that gives life. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of his conversation with Nicodemus. It's not your birth or pedigree that matters. It's the birth from above, the birth of the spirit that makes the difference. Craig Keener says, when Jesus uses the word flesh here, flesh includes the best of human religion. Many of these people were religious people. Doesn't matter, Jesus says. Everyone needs to fully consume me or they don't have life. That's offensive. You know, many people today are religious but don't have life. They may go to church somewhere, take communion, read their Bibles, become members even, but they've never truly committed their lives to Christ. They've never consumed him fully. Jesus says that profits you nothing. Think how offensive and out of touch with our culture this is. All man-made religions, no help in any of them. You must have Jesus, and not just have him, but consume him, personalize his death. Recognizing that what you contribute counts for nothing, so that your entire life is about him, abiding in him, and him and you. This is so offensive. You know, if salvation required people to climb up and down Pike's Peak a certain number of times, I don't think there would be enough room on the mountain. Just give me that chance. I can do it. But the minute you say you can't do anything to be saved, you need Jesus like everyone else. That's offensive. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus making everything about him, and this was way too much to swallow for many of these people. I mean, this is probably what they're thinking. Free bread and fish, that's cool. That's why I'm here. Getting loved ones healed of their diseases, that's cool. But this kind of over-the-top relationship with you, not cool. 
This is hard to accept. Who can choke it down? Another way to be translated could be demanding. This is a lot to ask, Jesus. I mean, this is way more than we can stomach. You're making the bar too high. I mean, we're not that into you. I mean, you've done some amazing things. I mean, you turn water into wine. We don't deny any of those things. But even if you are from God, consuming you, feeding on you, abiding in each other, this is too much. I have my own life to live. But I don't mind following you and adding you to my life. You seem like a great addition. But you're not going to be my life. I mean, that's too much. You're not going to be my all in all. You're not that good. They were religious consumers. They were only interested in the worldly food Jesus could provide. They followed Jesus as long as he aligned with their desires. We see the same response today, don't we? Many people want worldly food, even in church. Sermons offering tips for living and how to be successful. Make me feel good about my personal identity, my self-esteem, my own desires. Jesus is great, but this selling out business, I mean, that's too much. I'd rather nibble and sample and taste, but not ravenously consume. I mean, that's going too far. Many people profess allegiance to Jesus until they hear he teaches things they don't like. So they turn away. Maybe not physically, though they did here, but in our culture, turn away to a different Jesus who's no Jesus at all. One who's less demanding on my life. I mean, I'll show up the church and listen, but on my own terms. I'm not going to subject my desires to Jesus. I mean, if it comes down to Jesus getting in the way of what I want to do, I mean, if I'm in a tough spot with my job or my marriage or whatever, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean... God's word says it's wrong, I'm sorry, but it's my life. This is too close, too personal, too intimate, too much, too demanding, too hard. And they turn away. Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Is this level of intimacy and relationship too much for you? Does the fact that you really do need to be all about me Does that put a stumbling block in your way? Does this cause you to leave? Many of them did. Religious consumers. Jesus was great when he was meeting their physical needs, when he was aligning with their desires. Who doesn't want to be healed? Who doesn't want free bread and fish when there isn't any food? Easy to follow Jesus when things are going well. I'll follow him. I'll be a Jesus guy. But when he demands full allegiance, I mean, consuming him, abiding in him, I'm not that into them. I mean, if my life isn't fulfilling, at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want to do. I I don't care if he says it's right or wrong. I'm not going to let him put those kind of demands on my life. I'll reserve the right to do what I want. So they walk away. F.F. Bruce said this, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. And by walking away, They leave eternal life on the table. Because Jesus says, unless you're that into me, you don't have eternal life. That's a hard message. It's scandalous. A stumbling block for many. Too hard to choke it down. 
But as D.A. Carson says, how men and women respond to this supreme scandal determines their destiny. Yet many walk away. Rick Phillips says, Jesus was willing to allow the religious consumers to turn away. Instead, focusing on the few who were his committed disciples. I think this really illustrates the, the parable Jesus told of the soils, doesn't it? Some seeds fell on rocky ground. They sprouted quickly. Wow, they seem to be following Jesus. But then they fizzle out. Some were choked out over time. Not worth it. They choked out by the weeds of temptations and trials. Only some seeds grow up and bear fruit. And they represent those who feed on Jesus, who consume him. The rest were never truly born again. So many of his followers leave. And Jesus is not surprised at all, is he? He said the gate was small. He said the path was narrow. And it still is today. Many come to church wanting a little bit of Jesus in their lives. They like to nibble and taste, but not consume. When push comes to shove, their own life choices demonstrate, perhaps. They were never really believers. And when you canvass biblical history, that's always been the case, hasn't it? In the Old Covenant, there were many descendants, biological descendants of Israel, but only a remnant was regenerate. Only a kernel within that larger nation were the true people of God. It's the same among professing Christians today. Many leave. Many left. But not everyone. Not everyone. Letter B, some received it and stayed. Let's look at verse 67 together as I read through the end. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, we must understand, Jesus is not saying... You're not going to go away too, are you? I mean, really hoping somebody believes. I mean, we see his absolute sovereignty in the other verses, but he's using this situation to test his true disciples he, and give them an opportunity to demonstrate their faith. As Carson says, Jesus asked for their sake, not his. They needed to articulate a response more than he needs to hear it. Now, Peter's reply here. It's just beautiful. And I'll just say it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. And notice what Peter doesn't say in light of all this is happening. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about us, Jesus. I mean, where are we going? We're not going to go anywhere. We totally understand what's going on. No, that's not at all what he says. He says, to whom shall we go? It doesn't mean Peter and the committed disciples were not struggling with Jesus' teaching. It's just, what's the alternative If he's the way of salvation, you know, if your criteria for following Jesus is a full understanding of how God works in our lives, I guarantee you will walk away. Jesus never said, the one who perfectly understands everything will be saved. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Here in the midst of fake disciples departing left and right, Peter says, we may not understand everything, but we're not going anywhere. We don't know everything, but this is what we do know. If we want eternal life, it's all about you, Jesus. And we are all in. It's not about understanding everything, my friends. When you consider the Psalms, which you should do frequently, the Psalms are rife with lament. People who don't understand what's happening. What is God doing? People crying out, drenched with tears. But they're not crying out randomly. They're crying out to the Lord. That's the difference. In the midst of pain and confusion, the psalmists cling to the one who has life. They know it's all about the Lord. The Lord is salvation. The Lord gives life. And it's interesting that Peter here addresses Jesus as Lord. A couple different ways it could be rendered, but I think in this context it seems clear he's using the Hebrew designation for Yahweh, God himself. He also understands Jesus is the Savior. He's the, the one that has eternal life. And note Jesus' sovereignty here. Jesus doesn't say, oh good, I was hoping at least some people would believe. No, he says, did I not choose you? <laughs> Yet one of you is a devil. Even Judas was selected among the twelve, in his case, because of his unbelief. But for the others... Despite Jesus' choosing, they still needed to believe. They still needed to consume. Jesus says earlier, some of you do not believe. The salvation message has no value unless it's met with faith. We read in Hebrews 4, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's up to us to believe. So, what about you? Finally, in your outline, how will you respond? You know, people still walk away from Jesus today. The difference is they still do it physically in some cases, but most of the time not. In our passage, people heard words directly from his mouth. They could not escape the implications for their own life. They said, this is too much, and they walked away. Today, it's different. Jesus isn't physically speaking to us. Instead, his word comes from the scripture. And if people don't like what it means for their life, they walk away in their hearts. And often they still claim to be following Jesus. Some are even deceived into thinking they really are following him. They hear his commandments but deliberately choose to continue to disobey or choose to follow their own version of Jesus, which of course is no... Jesus at all, just following their own desires. I read an article this week about the show The Bachelorette. I bet you didn't see this coming. (laughs) I confess I haven't seen this, but apparently the contestant is a girl who is open about her so-called Christian faith. And apparently someone referenced the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that sex outside of marriage is wrong, sinful. Something that should be not even controversial among followers of Jesus. Well, this contestant, um, professing believer, apparently thinks that premarital sex is not really that big a deal. She says, I've had sex and Jesus still loves me. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I can do whatever and he still loves me. What a perversion of the gospel. 
Now, I don't know anything about this girl. Maybe she was misquoted, misspoke, hopefully. But this whole story saddens me. Just even the fact that she's on this show. It illustrates the sad state of affairs in American Christianity. And it's very troublesome. Let me just be as clear as I can. If your relationship with Jesus means you can do whatever, it's not Jesus you're following. It's an imaginary Jesus you've invented to fit your own desires. There's only one Jesus, and he's in our passage. He is Savior and Lord. And the real Jesus cares deeply about sin, cares deeply about obedience. As Peter says, he's the Holy One of God. In fact, he takes the commands of God so seriously that in his love, he went to the cross and endured hell because of it. He didn't go through that so that you could do whatever. He did it so that you might understand the gravity of sin against God, the immensity of his love to rescue you from that, to be saved from sin, not continue in sin. John The author of this gospel wrote other letters in the New Testament as well. And this is what he says there. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Listen. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Did you hear that? If you keep on sinning, you're not a believer. Now, John recognizes that true believers do commit sins. He says earlier in that same letter that if you claim you don't sin, you're a liar. That's not what he means. The normal cycle of Christian sanctification is sin, confession, repentance to the Lord who's faithful and just, he says, to forgive us and cleanse us. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about deliberate, ongoing sin that's normal in your life. It's doing whatever, even if God says it's wrong. That's not Christianity. If you have ongoing comfort with known, unchecked sin, John says you're not a believer, despite what you're claiming. If you're continuing to plan and do what you know God says is wrong, continuing to do whatever... Even if you think you're walking with Jesus, even if you seem to see good things come from your life, apparent blessings, at a minimum, John is saying, you should have no assurance that you're saved. You you very possibly could be deceived and have a relationship with an imaginary Jesus when you've actually walked away from the real one. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Frightening words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not do these mighty works in your name? Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you evil doer. Now, what's particularly troubling about this is these people are gifted, supposedly, apparently. They're doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. Amazing God things seem to be happening through them. Yet he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You thought you knew me? You claimed to know me? You claimed to do things even in my name that impressed people? But you did not have the relationship with me that you thought you did. 
because you pay no regard to doing what God says. This is a frightening passage. Frightening that it's possible to think you know Jesus, even doing mighty works in his name. Things where people say, wow, the Lord's working through them. Yeah, you don't even know him. Because you didn't listen to his word, you didn't consume him fully. And note this, even more frightening. It's not only possible to be in that situation. Jesus says this describes many people. Many Please don't join the many. Please be among the few. Are you hearing Jesus' outrageous command this morning to consume him, to draw your life from him, to be all about him? Is that too much for you? Do you think to yourself, he's not that good? I mean, I'm going to listen to him, but not in this area, for instance. Would you rather hold on to that area of your life where you don't agree with his word? Would you rather nibble and taste on Jesus but not consume him? Please think carefully because eternal life is at stake. Jesus is better. He's better than anything else. He's better than whatever desires may compete with him. He's better than whatever that desire is, that area that's keeping you from being all in with him. He's better than that. Those things will not ultimately satisfy the hunger of the human soul. Only feasting on Jesus can do that. He's the only true food. What about a different kind of temptation that's very real? What about the temptation to walk away during times of suffering? What about when the cancer comes? What about when you lose your health, when you lose your job, when you lose your spouse, when you lose your child? What then? Will you say, you know what? I followed for a while, but this is too much. I mean, Jesus was great when my desires were being met, but now that real pain has come, I think I'm out. I can't stomach this anymore. I'm like the seed that grew for a while, maybe, but these thorns are choking me out. I can't do it anymore. Or will you respond this way? You know, I don't understand any of this. I am upset, deeply distressed, and in severe pain. This is hard to swallow. But at the end of the day, to whom else could I go? If I turn away from Jesus, where else could I possibly find forgiveness for my sins? Where else could I find a rock like him? Where else could I find eternal life? I'm not going to cry out about him. I'm going to cry out to him. I pray that's your response. One that says, no, I may not understand these circumstances and this pain or what in the world God is doing. But here's what I do understand. Jesus suffered and died in a way that I cannot possibly imagine. And that flesh and blood was given so that I might have life. Not just any life, but eternal, abundant life that's found only in him. And I am all in. Jesus is enough. He's the true food I've hungered for. And I'm so grateful that he's shown his grace upon me. When those trials and temptations come, and they will, that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for all of us. Please stand as we close.
with our heads bowed, let's just reflect on what the Lord has shown us today in his word. If you're here this morning and you have never truly consumed Jesus, and you know that you desperately need to, to have eternal life, please do that today. Don't walk away. There's too much at stake. Receive what he's done on the cross for you and become a child of God. For those of us here where the Holy Spirit has maybe convicted on our hearts, maybe there's an area in our life that we've been neglecting, that we've not been obedient to the Lord. Please confess that to him. Repent of that. The flesh and blood he offered on the cross is more than sufficient to cover that, to cleanse that. He, he longs to forgive. He's ready to forgive. Please don't continue to stray. And please be open with one another. We need healthy hearts. We need each other. Please be open with another home group member or someone in the church. You can be transparent and pray for each other. We need each other in these things. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, the bread of life. We thank you that he's given himself for us and that he's the true food, the only satisfying food that brings satisfaction eternally. Lord, those who are struggling here, I know some are, please be merciful to them. Show them your love this morning, that you want all of them and you want them to want all of you to abide in them and they in you. We thank you so much for this gospel. Just pray that we would consume him fully and never look back. For Jesus' sake, amen.